God bless guys and welcome once again uh, to Research Podcast and today we continue our study on 1st John but before we get to the text at hand I would like to firstly say that it's, uh, it's been pointed out to me that, that I sometimes tend to confuse John with Paul um, and there's this high chance of me doing this throughout my whole discourse or this wonderful letter so I hope that you forgive me for that and, and obviously um, uh, I'm going to try not to uh, confuse the two, John or any other any other apostle or writer. Uh, but when I'm referring to John's writing, I'm obviously referring to John and not Paul or Peter or anyone else. But with that out of the way, let's remind ourselves of what we did uh, cover last time we were together in last week's episode as we uh, have to kind of have in, in our minds this clear um, uh, context uh, before proceeding to this week's text and last time we were together we we began by firstly establishing the context and purpose for why John is writing this letter to begin with to the church and we mentioned that this letter was to be considered what what we might call a general letter in that it was not a specific letter written to a specific church dealing with a specific issue or issues but rather it was it was more broad and singular um, that went across uh, uh, you know bodies of churches right it was it was sent to all the churches so we also considered the historical reality of what the church was facing during John's time. You know, the heavy influence of philosophers, in, in particular that of Plato's dualistic worldview that manifested itself in two major forms that eventually became two, two major forms um, in terms of practice um, that even to this day is still practiced. You see traces of this this worldview in the 21st century, you know, both beginning with the ideology that everything that is is of physical matter was deemed bad and everything that was spiritual was good. And the two distinct applications that, that come from this dualistic um, worldview, the, these two distinct applications are drawn out from this, this very fundamental misconception of reality was that on the one hand, some people will run out and, and just pretty much since there's no consequences, since the physical does not matter, then they would run out and just run a mark and, and live their lives the way they wanted to. The other side of that same coin um, was the polar opposite, uh, you know, that you had um, a school of thought that was, you know, more conservative because of the fact that the body was indeed evil so they felt the need to go to extremes such as as even beat up the body literally um, into submission and, and keep it separate from from anything that is physical and anything of this world and so they would you know go to monasteries and and, and things of that nature but it was so influential was this new perspective that it crept into the church's view of what um, they perceived to be who Jesus was or is. And it is to that that John is addressing here in this letter, getting to the heart of who Jesus really is because having the right understanding of who Jesus is will always result in an effectual salvation and not a mere misconception that does not bring about any biblical assurance of one's salvation, uh, which is what we are proposing to kind of do with this this study of first John is, is to come to a, a concrete understanding or uh, assurance of our faith and so begins and jo so, so John begins this letter by tackling the issue head-on right from the beginning by stating what had already what he had already stated in, in the gospel um, it's almost like he kind of retraces his steps from the gospel and we'll see a possible reason as to why that might be very very shortly but he starts sh off straight away like almost like a, a man being shot out of a cannon he's just like throwing punches essentially um, you know he's just going all out and there's there's not a time to kind of build up he just goes straight into it and so he begins with the testimonies of those who had witnessed Jesus firsthand keeping in mind that by by the time that John writes this letter the church in general would have been filled with already with some maybe second or even possibly third generational Christians 
And so he calls upon the cloud of witnesses that got to experience Jesus during his earthly ministry. Those apostles and disciples who had heard him speak like like in normal human, like a normal human being, normal voice, who saw him in his physical form with their very own two eyes and hands that, that had touched him, affirming the reality that Jesus did not come in, in the form of a spirit or a phantom-like um, form, but rather he did indeed possess a, a very real human, human uh, body. And so the denial of the humanity of Jesus would eventually lead to, like I said, lifestyle choices that were very contrary to scripture. Sinning was very much permissible um, according to this view, which is obviously the polar opposite um, of, of scripture. Things led to uh, beliefs such as the rejection of the doctrine of bodily re re resurrection because anything physical um, is deemed not good or, or, or whatever. It, it was something undesirable. So these things, um, this, this dualistic, this docetism teaching uh, led to these clear uh, heretical teachings. And so John is addressing this. And so the second thing he does is, is state for us his purpose as well. Um, in that he writes this or, uh, to the church with the benefit of holding on to the truth of Jesus' humanity. Like what comes from understanding that Jesus didn't in fact come in human form, that when we all come under the clear apostolic teachings of who Jesus is, we enter into a fellowship, a koinonia, firstly with God and, and then with each other. And this plays a vital role in, in comparison to what these uh, docetics were teaching, these Gnostic teachings um, were, were kind of being spread throughout the church. And so he says that, that we come into this fellowship, um, not only with God, but also with each other, but also with the apostles themselves. And, and let me just say that that is good company to be with, if you ask me, to be in, um, in fellowship with the apostles. And so the result of entering into such a partnership is that we are brought into this shared joy of knowing and partnering up with God and each other. So that's the basic outline outline of what we considered last time. But but let us get to um, let us get to what we're going to look at this uh, this time around in this in this podcast, in, in starting from verse five to the end of the chapter. Um, so let's get into it. Let's read First John verses five to ten, and the Word of God says this: This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Amen. Much like in anything nowadays in our modern day society, we see a constant forceful marriage between two things, the fusion, right? Um, we see that that's pretty big in, in food, right? You, you, you make fusions of, of two things, that two components that really sometimes don't go hand in hand, but together apparently it's great. And sometimes you see that in, in ideologies and, and worldviews and, and, and they try to kind of marry uh, these two thoughts of school. They, they take worldly wisdom and theology or scripture and try to make these things to... Uh, be compatible with each other. We see a lot of, a lot of this nowadays in, in um, being preached from the pulpit. We, we, it's easy identi uh, identifiable, um, where we see a lot of psychological mumbo jumbo mixed in with biblical verses to support their psychology. 
many preachers today could easily pass off as motivational speakers. Some of these refer themselves as life coaches as opposed to preachers. And it's something that I, I'm really glad that they go with that because they are not preaching the word of God. They are life coaches. They are motiv motivational speakers whose primary focus is on the self and not on God. Sure, they throw in a couple of verses here out of context and not relating to the subject at hand, but hey, they're there. They're there to dress their presentation as though it is a Christian teaching, but it is not. And then you have those who give us a so-called keys to success in ministry that are, are clearly stolen principles found in, in business textbooks that they have simply mixed it in with biblical verses to support this, uh, these claims. Well, as we mentioned in the recap, what was most popular in those days was this Gnostic worldview, this dualistic uh, worldview. And I'm going to use Gnostic um, and Docetism almost interchangeably, though they, they, they teach um, uh, uh, slightly different variations. But, but the main fundamental truth is this dualistic worldview. Um, and that, that really just kind of gained much popularity in John's day. You know, the Gnostic worldview incorporated, like I said, docetism, which was that dualistic belief that what was spiritual is good and what was of matter is evil. And so as such, they could not accept that Jesus was the, was the Christ come in human flesh. They had to do something with Jesus' humanity. And obviously the result, the end result was that they deny it. They reject it. So these Gnostic docetics would even share touching stories that were just not true, but they would say these just to kind of reinforce this false notion that Jesus, in fact, did not come in human form, right? They had this story that, that they kind of like would fall back onto. Um, one of those, one of their favorite stories to tell was that the disciples would walk along the beachside um, conversing with Christ. But when they would look back, they would notice only one set of footprints were left on the sand. The point being made that since Christ did not hold an actual physical body, but a spiritual one, that's the reason why he left no footprints. He only appeared to be in physical form. So with such a, a persuasive and, and very like uh, almost moving story, um, these guys would, would kind of share the, the worldview, share this misconception, this outright lie um, of Christ. With such a strong persuasive uh, or persuasion of this humanistic worldly wisdom, they were able or unable rather to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves and state what was true. They were gripped by the philosophy, or maybe it would probably be better to say that they had a large grip, a strong grip on the philosophy, on the philosophy and were unwilling to let go. So we as a society, we, we are prone to kind of listen and be swept away by any new teaching so long as there's a balance of reasoning or logic to it and a few Bibles mixed in there. Uh, thrown into the mix, then, then it, it's more easy for us to be convinced as though it is true what, what they're claiming. It is these false teachers or teachings that, that spread throughout the churches and eventually become cults and mutated versions of so-called gospels that are not real gospels at all. So-called real faiths that are not faiths at all, but they're cults. And it will be beneficial to us to kind of consider for a few moments um, some of these fundamental beliefs that these uh, docetics or the, these um, uh, Gnostics uh, claimed or what they believed in terms of um, their faith. And once, you, um, once we identify, what we, once we've seen what they, they believe, we begin to notice, we'll straight away see that what, is John, what John is doing in this letter is essentially addressing these things, in particular in this portion, but not just in this portion, but you know, even in this letter and in second and third of John, he's actually just attacking these false claims of, of teaching, of doctrine that these docetics uh, were, were preaching to the congregation. Now, what might be helpful in our understanding of their beliefs is if we know what these men, what these names mean, you know, docetics or docetism and, and Gnostic, Gnosticism. Um, 
What what is the, what do these words mean? So docetism means that you know, that their name really derives from from um, the Greek word that means to appear, uh, to appear, as in Christ only appeared to be having a human body, but did not. So that's what um, these docetics would uh, teach was this it, it just the appearance of. You know, Gnostic, uh, that name there tells us um, about their beliefs, where the word Gnostic means knowledge. And so these were the enlightened ones and claimed that they had come to know God through this newly founded knowledge. And so with this worldview of docetism, they were able to, to see the real Christ, you know, the, they claimed. For what he, they, they say that th with this uh, knowledge or this philosophy or this this whatever inspiration or whatever you want whatever they want to call it they were able to see who Jesus really was and that was you know a phantom like person who only looked human but carried no real flesh or blood and so the Gnostic belief they believed in, in the separation of the spirit from the flesh you know so there would be this this literal separation some of them claim to practice that they're able to leave uh the spirit is able to leave their bodies um etc etc um so that there was this real separation of physical physicality and the spiritual uh side of things uh docetism's teaching um uh, well, what they taught was that anything that was of spirit was good and perfect and, and the flesh was insignificant so this deadly combination of false teachings led to the belief that they were indeed sinless because of this, because they viewed the spirit um, as being almost a complete separate entity to the physical world or the physicality, uh, that led them to the conclusion that indeed they were able to become sinless and were unable to commit sins before God because of this dualistic framework. So the knowledge that the spirit is pure just like that of Christ, led them to questionable lifestyle choices that clearly would not be practiced by a true Christian. Sanctification and separation from sin was not a required thing in their religion or in their worldview. It was quite um, liberal in, in, um, in their way of, of living, in the way that they would participate in, in things that were clearly forbidden in Scripture. So they believed that Jesus, the man, and this is where it kind of all stems from. They believed um, that Jesus, the man, the human being, received what is referred to as the divine sperma, which means seed, right, at his baptism. So this is what they claim, right? This is what they were teaching and they hold on to, um, that Jesus at his baptism received this divine sperma at his baptism and thus they were they were able to kind of distinguish and separate between the man Jesus and the spiritual Christ. And so the baptism of Jesus is their most vital component of their false teaching. It is the cornerstone, the foundation on which they base these teachings of, these misconceptions, it all stems at the baptism of Christ. And thus they were able to deny, because of this, the incarnation of Jesus. They didn't believe in that. They didn't believe that, that you know, the, the Logos came down, the eternal Son came into creation and, and took on the form of flesh. They don't believe that. They believe that Jesus was created. He was a human being. And that this, this uh, divine sperma, this di divine seed uh, rested upon him. And, and that's when things changed for him. So they believed and taught that the death of Jesus as well was not necessary for salvation. This is so important, right? It, it, to us, it's like, what What do you mean? Like, that's what they... Yeah, the most important part or the most, most important element of Jesus's ministry according to these guys was the baptism not the crucifixion so they believed and taught that the death of Jesus was not necessary it wasn't required it wasn't important to our salvation it is the baptism like I said which for us is just super strange to hear and we then ask well what brought about their salvation what what is it that that they claimed how is baptism the way through which we find salvation. Well, as I mentioned to you just now, the baptism of Christ is that foundation 
uh, for their false teaching. They believe that just like Jesus at his baptism, when the Spirit of God descended upon him and rested permanently on him, that that was the model for all believers. And as such, they claim that at one's baptismal, when, when someone's baptized, they would receive that same divine or that sperma that initiates their rebirth, that they are born again through baptism, this ritual of baptism. And so they were now born of God and as such, they were made sinless, literally immune to sin, that their spiritual state has been covered, that they've been essentially regenerated, right? It's what, um, if, if we could use our one of our terms to, to try to understand their theology. So they believed that at the baptism, what baptism does is it creates in you this, this um, it, it cleanses you in that sense and, and, and creates a pure spirit that enables your spirit to become immune to sin. This is all important. This all important baptism is what brought them, they claimed, into this fellowship, this koinonia. So this is what they believed. This is what they were teaching. That at the baptism, it was the initiation of bringing man into this relationship, into this fellowship, into this partnership with God. And so literally, this is actually, by the way, this is part of the reason why many scholars believe that John uses koinonia, uh, really it's a, it's a weird word for him to use. He never really uses it. So he, they argue that he's borrowing this term from someone else. And so they're borrowing this term from these guys that were teaching this, this so-called fellowship that came about through the baptisms. And so they believe that, that through baptism, they would come into this fellowship with God. So, so as long as they were in fellowship with God, in this partnership with God, it didn't really matter whatsoever how they interacted with each other. That is, with other human beings, with, with the rest of the church. In other words, the call to love your neighbor was not, was not something that was upheld by these guys. They, they dropped that from their, their, their belief system. You know, they didn't love your neighbor as yourself. That was disregarded. It just did not matter if you were mean to others or not. Because at the end of the day, you were good with God. And the flesh is evil anyway. So it doesn't really matter. You could just like, just pass it off to as being, look, it's just part of the flesh, man. It's evil. I can't help it. I'm mean. That's my character. You know, so don't worry. God's going to get rid of it one day and I'm just going to be a free spirit. Right. So, so that's kind of the mentality that they're coming from. So these guys were very much so um, free to just be sinful. Essentially, it was a license to sin. A lot of people think that the doctrine of grace gives a license to sin. No, no. This false teaching is the one that, that gives you this, this false notion that you have liberty to sin, which is not truth, by the way. It's not true. But ironically, some, some scholars, and this is really interesting, um, some scholars believe that the source of their beliefs, this is really interesting, that the source of their beliefs, like the, the, from where they derive these, these conclusions, which is a, such a misinterpretation of the source that they're dealing with, the source of their beliefs was derived from their fourth, from the fourth gospel, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from John's gospel, they had misinterpreted the gospel and mixed it with worldly pagan religious uh, and philosophy and uh, to create this mutated so-called gospel. There is even, oh my gosh, you could just imagine why John is like furious and why John just starts off ranting off in in the way he does in this letter in First John, and why he just begins to kind of retrace his thoughts of what he says in the gospel in 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 the opening um, section, you know, of John chapter one verses one to eighteen. He almost like summarizes that in in a rush form. It's like, man, you guys have missed the point of what was said in that section. And so he kind of goes over that and he begins to attack these false teachings. Because if it's true, according to what this scholar presents, is that, yeah, they, they were borrowing from or they, were, they, they would draw out these false notions 
or they used John as their foundation for these false notions, right? These misconception, misinterpretations to say the least. And there's even a story from the second century concerning what, what some scholars believe to be speaking of John the Apostle, um, the, the main corporate of the the one who was teaching and spreading this Gnosticism, this this false teaching throughout the church, um, that there was a story that there was an encounter between John and this guy. Anyways, the story goes something along the lines of this: that one day John was at at, at a bathhouse in Ephesus, and now uh, we're not too familiar in our society with with what a bathhouse is. Essentially, what a bathhouse is. Is uh, or was were, uh, was a place essentially where you would go and take baths because you know little uh, it's a bit strange to us now but baths were not actually built in homes um, until just the recent that's a modern thing you know the fact that we had baths in our houses is a standard now that was not the standard back in the second century you had to go to these actual places where you would go and and have baths so. You would have to go and have a bath at this bathhouse, and so, anyways, John is one is at one of these um, these bathhouses in Ephesus when he heard that uh, Sorinthus, which is the guy who um, many believe is the main guy that was spreading these false notions, these false claims, these Gnostic teachings, and, and mixing it with the Christian faith, that. Uh, that Serinthus was in the same bathhouse as John was. And the story goes that he rushed out without bathing, say, uh, to his companions, John, right? Saying to his companions, let us leave, lest the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So that kind of just kind of gives you a snapshot of what was going on during this time. And whether the story of John is true or not doesn't really change the fact that John was definitely frustrated, upset, not happy to say the least with what these teachers or teacher was preaching and spreading throughout the church. He was zealous for the truth that these men were denying and convincing church members to, to adopt and embrace this dualistic worldview. It created, therefore, division within the church. It created division through confusion and deception where people were being convinced of something that was simply not true. And so as we read this epistle, it makes sense why John seems to be going on a rant you know, when you read it, if, if you will, just, just about these guys, what, what, what these guys were teaching. He was, he was writing in, in a holy anger against these false teachers. And, and, I think, um, <clears throat> and I think it is important that we keep in mind that this is John, the apostle of love. I want that to kind of sink in for a moment. Like... If we had the choice between having Paul speak to the congregation in, in, in you know, addressing maybe an issue or a sin within our local church or, or, or John, most people might choose John because of his loving nature. You know, he's the guy that rested on the chest of Jesus. He was, he was that loving guy. He was just all about love. But, but if it was a matter of false teaching... I think John would just tear us apart. He would lose it at us because of his great love for the truth. All right. I mean, you see that he would just, he, he just starts off. There's just no preparation. He just goes straight into it. But having said that, at the same time, all, all the epistles from the apostles that deal with false teaching, they all express this same great anger and frustration towards uh, these false teachings and in particular these false false teachers that were spreading these things. I mean, Paul tells the Galatians, you foolish, you stupid Galatians, right? Um, the author of Hebrew tells the Jews that they were being childish and lazy. Like when it comes to false teaching and going back to uh, things that were, were not biblical, 
They were very frustrated. They were expressed their anger. When it comes to false teachings, it must be addressed immediately and with assurance um, that your, your anger is justified by the truth. You know, it, it has to be addressed with, with anger, rightly so, because the truth is what is being con compromised. It has to be addressed with anger towards falsehood, but also at the same time as the, these uh, apostles and, and writers of these wonderful epistles, epistles um, would express was this genuine love towards those who are being manipulated by these, uh, these lies. So for those who are looking for assurance of faith, I want to say this, and, um, and I will return to this again because it is so important. It is so important that we have this in, in, our, in our minds. John is dealing with a body of people who are confused. And some even have been led astray by these, these lies and false notions. Why? Because the truth of the matter is that there can be no real assurance of one's faith when that faith is not grounded upon the truth that is found in Scripture. We'll say that one more time. There can be no real assurance of your faith if that faith is not grounded on the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture. It has to be grounded in Scripture. Now, I want to leave that there just for a moment. Because all that we've just looked at, um, all that context that we've just kind of really considered in terms of what these guys were teaching. And, and if you've been paying close attention, you've already seen how these things play part into what John is addressing in this epistle. How he addresses those very thoughts, those very teachings head on. Um, so if you would join me. In, in the next half of this, I know we've, we've labored along um, a, a bit of time in setting this up, but it is, ben it would, it is beneficial um, for our understanding um, of the verses. From here on, the verses are much more easier to understand and we can go through them a lot quicker. So, if you allow me, uh, come back and or, or if you need to take a break, this is a good time uh, to take a break and then we'll continue on with unpacking the rest of this. Okay, now that we have set that up and have that context in mind, let's get to the text and begin to see what John is actually saying. So read with me verse 5 once again and, 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 and the Word of God says this, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. <clears throat> it is so important to know this about John, because though it may very well be possible that these Gnostic teachers were misinterpreting his gospel, he does not take the issue as being with him, but rather with God. Note that with me. He in no way is defending himself personally. All he does is, is what all of us should ever do when confronting truth eh, or confronting falsehood rather with, with the truth. And that is to point to God and bring him into the equation because clearly these guys have removed him from the equation through the deceit because they've removed what scripture is teaching. So he begins this section with the words, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Who is the him being referred to? I believe it's Jesus because that is what, what connects us back to the, the opening statement that he gave in this letter. The same Jesus who's, who's, um, whom they saw with their very own eyes, whose hands had touched and ears had heard. The very same one was he who entrusted them with this truth about who God is. Because when Christ came, he reveals to us fully who God is to us. And so it did not originate from some mystical philosopher 
some worldly worldly wisdom some some guy who sounded really good or some guy wrote a really influential uh, business model and we're going to just kind of adapt this and and take it as though it's a christian thing. no no this came straight from from god himself and so if it was a fight let's say right if this was a boxing match it, it wasn't john versus the gnostic you know it wasn't the gnostic versus john you know part two no it, it was literally it was these gnostic teachers versus god and his word that's all it was if, if anything it was just john was the, the, the referee he was just witnessing this right so these men considered themselves to be the enlightened ones who possessed the light, who, who, who were enlightened and were also wise because of this philosophy that they've now kind of come up with. You know, and throughout scripture, and, and not just in scripture, but outside of scripture, light and darkness are mostly used to describe what, what knowledge and, you know, in comparison to like knowledge and foolishness or purity and uncleanness and righteousness and unrighteousness, etc., etc. It's, it's, a, it's a means to kind of um, compare two things, a contrast between two things. And it is in this light that John is kind of like, with that thought that John is using this word light as a means to point to the source of such a light. He is saying, look, you want to talk about light, you want to talk about truth, you want to talk about being enlightened or whatever. A light um, that, that uh, illuminates darkness. Well, then there's only one true light, the source of all light, and that is God, because He is pure and holy. He is light. You know, and so we got to go back to what God says. We've got to go back to... Uh, to or fall under the authority, rather, of, of God and God's word. Now, the word theos is used here that has been translated into God, into, into the English. And this is just like my own personal belief here in this. But, but I feel that as though it refers to Christ here in light of what, uh, they, or, or what they were claiming, what ha had been claimed and, and taught about the, the duality of a person. You know, to be uh, good spiritually and disregard what we do in the flesh, you know, that, that, that teaching. So since God is indeed by nature altogether good and holy and with no darkness, there is no room for them to consider Jesus as bearing anything that could be viewed or considered as darkness. For light and darkness share no common ground. As such, the duplicity of their teaching could not be found in God and therefore should not be applied to the believer since we accord to the standard of God. All right? The standard of who our God is. Be holy, for your God is holy. Be holy, for your God is holy. And so... It, the point is that since God is light and the call of God is for us to be imitators of him, we can't come to, they could not come to the conclusion that it's okay for them to sin. But regardless of whether, you, you know, you agree with me in saying that John is speaking of Jesus or, or, or just purely of God when, when he says theos or not, the point remains the same, that God in nature is not dualistic and the call to live out and be imitators of God remains the same for all of us. We got to, to be imitators of God, you know, just as if we claim that he is our father, then, and, and we therefore are his children, then we will resemble our father. Now, before we look at the next verse, which I will attempt to go through them very, very quickly, as, as quickly as possible, we've taken a lot of time to set up, um, the, you know, all that we... We had to say in the first half, we, we must consider the possible structure that John is utilizing here to kind of dismantle these claims that these guys were making. So please note with me that in verse 6, in verse 8, and verse 10, please just identify this in your, in your Bibles. They all begin with the phrase, if we say. It is important to keep this uh, in mind for they serve as markers or indicators for the three claims that these teachers were making and these are the three claims that John the Apostle is about to attack, dismantle and destroy. 
So let us identify them and then we'll treat them individually. We'll, we'll assess them one by one. And like I said, we won't take too much time in this. So these are the three, three uh, claims that they were, were saying these guys were, were preaching or teaching. The first claim is if we say, this is what you know, we find in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with, so they're claiming this fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with God, if we say we have no sin, and if we say we have not sinned. These are the things that these guys were claiming. They were claiming a fellowship with God. They were claiming to have no sin, and they were claiming to not have sinned at all, right? To commit sins. So these are, these are the three statements. These are the three statements that give us the general idea of what these men, or possibly that, that main one teacher by the name of uh, Serinthus, right, were spreading. The claims to have fellowship with God, and through this fellowship, they were immune to sin. Because of this dualistic worldview that they held on to, physicality and, and anything that is physical matter, is evil anything that is spiritual invisible and can't be seen was good so that is the basis to understanding what is going on in these verses um so if we could just read verse six and seven again um let's go back to first john one verse six uh, it says this and seven, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Okay. From all sin. So John begins by hitting hard at their biggest claim here. As we mentioned, their main grounding for such a claim to fellowship was with the, you know, their baptismals, right? Their, their baptisms as, as the means through which we were, or they claimed that we were initiated into such a fellowship with God. But the point that he makes um, is that, the, that they claim to have fellowship. The, the point that these guys were making um, about having this fellowship with God is clearly disproven by the one acts uh, a, a, that these guys lived out in their lives. It was disproven by the way that they chose to express themselves in such a liberty. You know, John greatly agrees with James in this, in the sense that the proof of one's faith is through their deeds, right? Like it is made evidence because dead faith is made evidence by the lack of works, right? Faith without works is dead. And so John identifies and agrees with James in this sense that, that not that works justify a man, but, but rather that they are the evidence of one who is already being justified, right? So that's the point of James. And John is saying the same thing, essentially, that, hey, you're claiming for something that clearly your lifestyle is disproving because the, the fact that you're living in such sinful acts or doing sinful acts or living in a sinful way clearly disproves the claim that you are in fellowship with God. Because the fact that you can act in, in, in this way um, shows you that you're not in any way in a relationship with the true living God. So John says about those who claim this fellowship with God that if, if that were true of them, then the result would be that they would not walk in darkness. They would not be practicing things that were clearly of a sinful nature. And John doesn't list what these sins were specific, but we, we may be given a clue as to uh, what the main issue or what the main evidence was before the eyes of John that, that these guys weren't a part of the fellowship of God. And the main concern um, that John had was that these men were not fellowshipping with one another. That means the, the, the church, the body of Christ. These guys were in some way shape or form were distancing themselves from the rest of the community of the body of Christ. They were distancing themselves from, from, from the rest of the church 
whether it be through insult, whether it be through this, um, uh, what's it called, this prideful notion that they were superior in one way. There was this distinction that was being made between these guys who were claiming to have the truth and then the rest of the church. And so they weren't fellowshipping and they weren't connecting with the rest of the church because of that. You know, like we said that these guys considered that because they were spiritually now perfect um, and, and the flesh, it didn't matter. They were able to do whatever they wanted and holding contempt whoever they wanted. It didn't really matter. And it's interesting that, that John, when making the statement that if one is truly in fellowship with God, that the evidence of such a claim is that they practice this, this truth. And the way that John identifies one as practicing the truth is with their fellowship with the church, that that becomes one of the, the uh, marquee evidence that suggests to us that indeed they are in fellowship with God. In other words, there is just not any biblical basis for those who claim that they are Christians but are not connected with any church whatsoever. Any, any person who claims to be with God and have a great relationship with God and yet do not find themselves connected with the rest of the body makes themselves out to be clear liars. You know, they have convinced themselves that they are able to have a fellowship with God through their private prayer life and, and through the reading of scripture while at the same time hold the church in disfavor. They claim this. And there, there is a clear contradiction there because the same Lord whom they claim they love and worship in their private time, I use that loosely, is the very same Lord who loves the church so much so that He gave His life for her. There is just no way that these, these so-called believers be in fellowship with Christ, the head, and at the same time neglect his body. There is just no way. And this is what John is pointing out to these Gnostic hypocrites who lie through the teeth when they disregarded the church by their so-called illuminated state because they had the truth or whatever, because they th thought that they were good with God, that they were okay with God, that they had a relationship with God. It was just a straight up lie. The way you are living your life, the way you treat the church will testify to whether or not you are actually in the fellowship with God. How could God tolerate a so-called professing Christian uh, to love him and to be, to be a believer and a follower of Jesus while at the same time hate what God loves, right? Despise what God loves. It does not mix. And so the other claim that these so-called teachers were making, as we mentioned in the beginning, was the means through which they claimed access to this fellowship with God. And that was not on the basis of Jesus dying on the cross, for that would contradict their dualistic worldview. Um, that would mean that Jesus indeed was, was human and died. You know, he physically did. So what does John do? They, like I said, they claim to the baptism um, and, they, and so what does he do? He, he, he challenges that. He says to them, in effect, that the fellowship that they boasted in could only really become a reality, not through baptism, but through the death of Jesus on the cross. They were saying, we have fellowship with God through the baptism because of this, this so-called divine sperma comes upon you and then therefore you're, you're made right with God and so it doesn't matter what happens with you in, um, in the flesh, it doesn't really matter. This he makes clear though by his usage of the phrase here in this verse, in this passage, where he says, the blood of Jesus. He highlights that he makes mention purposefully the blood of Jesus. Why does he say that it is at the cross, the death of Jesus, as being the means through which we enter into fellowship with God? Because it is the very fact that God shed, uh, sorry, that Christ shed his blood that gave way for our washing of our sins. The, the pouring of Jesus' blood 
was the, the means, the agent through which God would cleanse or wash away our unrighteousness. It is the means through which God deals with humanity's sin problem, not through the act of baptism. It is at the cross that God, in the body of His Son, Jesus, that He removes the sin of man and places it on the body, the body, the body of Christ, that He may take our place in death. John clearly makes it obvious that Jesus did, in fact, have a physical body because for Him to bleed implies that He had a body. He had to have a body. And it is the righteousness of that perfect man-God uh, that, that is thus imputed onto us, making us clean and therefore giving us access into the fellowship with God. That is the way we have fellowship with God. It is not through baptism. It is through the work of of Christ. So the point that John makes is if you remove the humanity of Jesus, if you do not consider Jesus at the cross as, as the essential element of your salvation, then you are not in truth as they claimed to be. They are not in a real fellowship or to use modern Christian language, in a relationship with God. You're not. You if you can be separated from the church, you are not in a real relationship with Jesus. If you, if you can disregard the work and the humanity of Jesus, you are not in fellowship or in a relationship with Jesus. If you deny the, the divinity of Jesus even, which is what our day and age they, they criticize, they criticize, then you are not in a relationship with God. You have to have the accurate and precise representation or, or revelation that we have of who Jesus is and who God is that is found in Scripture. Otherwise, you are outside of that, that relationship, that partnership, that koinonia, that fellowship. Let's read verse 8 and 9. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves... And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This one will hit really quick um, just to wrap things up. John here now moves on to their next claim that these heretics were teaching you know, to the church, and that is that through this sperma that comes with baptism, you know, at one's baptismal, they claim to have dealt with the problem of sin in general. That it was there at the baptism, that sin was no longer an issue with them anymore. That that stain of sin had been removed and dealt with, and they were now born of God, and as such, they felt no necessity to confess sin. Because they believe they had none, right? You can't confess something you, you, you believe you don't have. How little things have changed to this day, really. For there are those who still believe in one way or another, just like these guys, that they really don't have a problem with God. That God is okay with them. Um, but to this, John says, is nothing short of self deception is people who claim that they're all right with God, that I'm okay, that I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively good person. I'm good enough for God's standard. Uh, I do good deeds. I practice this or whatever it is, uh, whatever claims of boasting that they, they want to say, whatever it is. That John says, listen, you are self-deceiving. You are working against yourself in this. And that the truth of God's word is not found within you if you think that about yourself. We therefore remain in a state of opposition with God and remain as enemies of God if we accept this false notion that we perceive or the way that we perceive ourselves as being okay. If we hold on to that claim that I'm okay with God, 
then we remain in a state of in a state of enemy uh, with God, in enmity with God. So with such a startling statement, John recognizes that some of his flock may have been convinced by the persuasive nature of these teachers and might felt the sting of those words. And so he offers them um, hope. He offers them consolation, not in us, but in God's faithfulness to forgive us our sins. But on what basis does God forgive and justify the unjust? Solely on the perfect work of His Son Jesus at the cross. We must therefore run to Christ as He is the only means through which we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And that's the point that is making here. You can't claim to be okay with God if you haven't clinged on to or held on to the way through which God makes you okay with Him. That's the point. Don't consider yourself to be in good measure with God based upon your own efforts or performance of keeping the law or anything else. Because of your moral high ground, none of that is, is of value before the holiness of God. It is rubbish all right or as paul would use the term dung it is crap verse 10 and we'll finish up now <clears throat> verse 10 says this if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us okay so in in verse 8 and 9 it's dealing with the, the nature of sin the, the the sin that is in us and in verse 10 he's dealing with the specific acts of sin in a sense right so the final claim of these teachers was that that sin <clears throat> that, that the sin that the sin problem that they had was dealt with at baptism right well, that's what they hold on to that God was now seeing their spirit as pure and uh, of his offspring, right? And since they claimed that the body was something that God was not really interested in, he would kind of like disregard it, the only thing that concerned him was the soul or spirit, they believed that the spirit would be saved and the body would be disregarded. So it became quite easy for them to reason that even if they allowed themselves to partake in, in clearly sinful acts, it wouldn't affect or damage their standing with the eternal, eternal God. You know, it wouldn't affect their eternal state. So they claimed that they were not sinning when they sinned. That's essentially what, what they claimed. It's not sin. It's fine. I'm good with God. And we can begin to see why this teaching may have been so easily accepted by many, many, many people. Because the lie that these guys were preaching, you know, was so enticing to man because we are so inclined to sin. We want to sin and still be okay with God. That is the ideal, right? That is what we, we um, sin, our sinful nature craves. We want to go to heaven. We just don't want God to be there, right? Essentially is what it is. We want to be okay with God, but we also want to continue in our addiction of pornography. We still want to sleep around with our girlfriends before we marry them. You know, we still want to, to cheat on our taxes. We still want to, uh, whatever it is, we, we still want to do those things that we clearly shouldn't be doing, you know? We still want to be disobedient. We still want to get drunk and go to parties. We still want to enjoy all these things, of these different forms of entertainment that distract us or remove us from the real joy that is found in God because we like it. And so this appeals to them that the fact that, listen, your soul, your spirit is good, right? And this, unfortunately, is how they paint um, Reformed theology, right? When we say that we are made right with God, we are justified with God and that we, we can't lose our salvation because God has us. And so they try to paint us as though we, we believe this, that we therefore can sin. No, no, no. By no means, Paul says, because man, once you're dead in sin, how could you continue living in it? It's disregard. No, you can't. Quite the opposite. You have to remove yourself from it. But John once again returns to the issue back at hand to where 
it must be grounded upon, um, and that is the word of God. He goes back to what God has said. Is, is what these men teaching actually what God has said? That's the issue. Of course not. It is clear from scripture, in particularly the Old Testament, because that is what John would be referring to here. Um, you know, that's what they had. That's what they used. That God teaches that we are sinful. We are by, by nature children of wrath. That even our very best deeds or, or whatever we want to call them are considered by God as filthy rags before the holy presence of God. So by their claim that they were not sinning when they sinned and therefore were sinless, by that very claim, they were making God to be a liar. Because God didn't say that. God said the opposite. God clearly says the truth that man, about these men, that they were boasting that they were sinless. He says, no, you guys are sinful. These guys, these men were boasting in, uh, was a complete lie. It was not the truth at all. And the truth of God did not reside in them. And that's what John is saying here. That's the point that John is making. These men were teaching clear lies. And, and we can see why John is frustrated, why he sh shoots out, you know, starts off this epistle like a, like a man shot out of a cannon. He's just like, he's just coming out swinging because in that frustration, how can you take the gospel that I wrote and, and just mutate it to what you guys are mixing it and adopting um, man wisdom, you know, this philosophy. He addresses them head on. He says, you will not come to any form of reassurance based on this. And I, we, we began with this statement that and I want to restate this again um, because it's so important. There can be no assurance, no real assurance of faith when that faith is not grounded on the revealed truth of God. It can't be. There can be no assurance of faith if it's not based on the truth of God. I've had the privilege of, of talking with Jehovah's Witnesses and they're very aggressive and they stand firm on their lies. You know, even though we, we, I clearly would identify and be like, listen, you guys tampered with the word of God, added words that are clearly not in the original Greek and that that is okay. You know, the fact that you, your, your people have confessed to, you know, claiming that they've, they've um, prophesied and, and give prophecies concerning things that, that were going to happen that clearly did not happen and therefore clearly disproves your whole um, religion and not they would just they would just reject it they would just reject those claims they're so glued to their lies but there is just no reassurance in their in the gospel and so I allowed him to kind of persuade me then what is the good news that you are preaching to me that you want me to become a, a JW, a Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and to sum it all up? And the best that he could do was, you know, he would say things like, you know, look, if you just obey and you follow these things and you go through all these, if you, you know, checklist this, you will have the possibility of being saved. And I just turned and said to him, that is the gospel that you are presenting people with. That's the hope you are offering. A maybe, a possibility that you might be saved. And they were like, yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the, the, the day, Jehovah is sovereign and he will pick whoever he wants. And we get criticized for being you know, heavy handed with the, the sovereignty of God. These guys are saying, yeah, you know what? At the end of the day, he's going to pick and choose. So it's up to him. And that's why it's a maybe. The best we can do is a maybe. And so I was just like, so the Jesus you are preaching to me, he's not a real savior. He's a potential savior. There's no assurance in lies. The, the, in, in the scriptures, we are given assurance because the savior of the world is effectual. He came to save a people and that people that he came to save are indeed saved there can be no assurance of faith when that faith is grounded or not grounded rather on the revealed truth of God 
That's just one example. There are many religions and cults and even those who profess to be, you know, real Christians or have the real faith. But all those who speak such words can all be tested by the scriptures. And that's what I want to call all of you. Tested by the scriptures. We must begin with the right understanding that the scriptures we call the Bible are the very words of God and will never fail. We have to start there. All other things will pass away, but His word will never pass away. So how can we know what we believe is true? Just test the scriptures. Compare whatever ideology, tradition or thought that we may have. Compare it and bring it to to the word, to the lamp that is to our feet. That's the word of God. Let the word of God speak for itself. It needs not your defense nor your approval. It is the very power of God unto salvation. All you need to do is believe and then proclaim that. So John's audience were in clear peril. Jew to these men's false claims and as such we must stand up just like John did and address those claims without fear we got to address it we got to confront the lies we noted that all John really did was share what God had revealed already and he compared what those so-called teachers were teaching and put them side by side with the word of God and what God had said and exposed their lies and by doing so, he liberated those brothers who may have been confused by their persuasive philosophy and, and human wisdom and reasoning. So the application is clear. If you want assurance in your faith, there's only one place to find it. Seek his word and do not cease in this. For our only hope for salvation lies with, with God's perfect Christ, the historical, biblical Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this portion, this moment that you've allowed us to consider a little bit in depth um, the, the beliefs of these, these false teachers in the time of John. Um, preaching a false gospel, a false Jesus. And the way that John exposes these lies is something wonderful and of an example towards us. Father, I pray for those who are listening who are maybe shaken in their faith. I pray that uh, you would guide them through your spirit into the word and reveal the truth and bring conviction of the truth that we may stand firm on the truth that you have revealed to us in your holy scriptures. That we may not be persuaded by philosophy, by science, by, by uh, worldly wisdom, humanistic wisdom, but rather that we are grounded on the revealed truth in scripture. And thus, we come to an assurance of our faith, an assurance of our salvation, not in our own self, but in you, O oh God. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.